Our faith influences our everyday life, and that is why theology matters. It's important we know what it is we believe and why we believe it. Join me, Cass, as we talk about theology and how it impacts our everyday life. We'll discuss cultural societal norms and taboo topics, all in light of biblical truths and standing firm in Christ. This is Her Theology. Welcome to Her Theology. Thank you for coming and listening to this episode, ladies. I'm excited that you're with me. As always, if you're new to Her Theology, you can find out more on Instagram at Her Theology. That's where I post some things, not regularly, but you can find some things on there. Uh, And you'll get updated when episodes come out. Obviously, if you like this episode or if you've heard other ones and you're enjoying Her Theology, please subscribe to whatever platform you're listening to. Like it share it with your friends and family. That's the most powerful way we can beat the algorithm because it's not always working in the favor of Christian ministry, just throwing it out there. But I will stop talking about that stuff and get onto the good stuff. So I have just finished reading this book, 10 Dead Girls You Should Know About, not know about, just know in general. Uh, And it's by Rachel Chino and Ian J. Maddock. This has been a book that has really um, impacted me more than any other book recently, actually. It's been really uh, helpful and encouraging for me. Uh, This book highlights the lost voices of many incredible God-fearing women that furthered the gospel over the past 2,000 years. It displays a wide variety of women, the meek and gentle to the bold and courageous, uh, the quiet servants and the witty and loud disciple makers. It gave me a good laugh as well. Uh, This book encouraged me more than I expected, like I said. So each woman is called in her unique way to further the gospel, to grow the church and most of all glorify God. And as you read it, you will likely connect with several of the women and be really blessed by their powerful testimonies. Now, it's not without their errors. Uh, The authors have done a great job at highlighting um, their great um, motivations and heart for the gospel, but also the sinful struggles and paired that with the harsh realities of Christian ministry. So I think it's a book for everyone, male and female. Uh, This book also helps you challenge and think through your theology. It ignites an inquisitive heart to read and understand the scriptures a little more and just helps you see how God moves powerfully through women to spread the gospel and disciple others in his church. So I truly believe it will whet your appetite for further study into the church history and it will also challenge you to stretch your capacity to serve and do all the things God's called you to do. So we are very privileged today to sit down with Rachel Chino. She is currently a 2023 Anglican Deaconess Ministries Senior Fellow and it is also a lecturer at Christianity in History at SMBC. Uh, She is also the author of this book, but also the book that came before this, which is 10 Dead Guys You Should Know. And she co-authored these two books with Ian Maddox. So Rachel, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sorry, that was a long intro, but worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you enjoyed the book. Yeah, I did. I really did. I was like, I could finally write a book review. I really enjoyed it. Um, (laughs) So I gave a little bit of an uh, intro to who you are, but can you tell us a little bit more yourself? What's, what does personal life look like? Yes. So I uh, live in Sydney's inner west and I, in my household, I uh, have my husband 
and I have two young sons. They're eight and they're 12. So it's a very noisy, fun, chaotic household. Yeah. And, yep, I love it. Yeah, I should say my my husband uh, is a church minister, so that's a big part of our lives, and we planted a church together in the suburb that we're in um, a bit over a decade ago. That's great. And um, so we've been doing that together over that time, and, and we started from scratch, just him and me, traipsing the streets, trying to connect with locals and see how the gospel uh, addressed the needs in their lives and thinking how to communicate the gospel best to them. So it's been a slow a slow build over that time. Yeah. I love that. That's a lot of commitment. That's a big mm. calling. Yeah. A lot of uh, yeah. obedience. I appreciate that. That's good. Um, so I have to get stuck in. What what made you and Ian uh, decide to start this book series um, and write this book? This series, um, starting with 10 Dead Guys You Should Know and now into 10 Dead Gals You Should Know, um, originally started as a series of summer talks at a church in Sydney's West um, and they wanted to have a person from church history presented uh, and so they asked uh, faculty at Sydney Missionary and Bible College if they could come and do some of those. And so we spoke on people that we uh, specialised in and this church particularly wanted the history to connect with people in the congregation. So history should never sit in a vacuum, mm. I believe. It should connect here and now and help us live more wisely uh, so that's what we did. So uh, from that, we thought, or Ian, Ian came up with the idea, why don't we put it into a book? Um, and so that helped set the tone of the book as well. So it is pitched at a very accessible level. So it's written by people who specialise in this area. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, research and history. These are our specialty areas in many ways. But we've pitched it for the everyday person in church. And we have pitched it both books to men and women. So the guys' book is not for guys and the gals' book is not for gals. Um, Both books are for men and women in churches. Yeah, definitely. And I did really notice that as you wrote it it was very uh like when you're reading through it I'm going oh yeah I I relate to that that aspect of their life or I relate to that challenge in ministry it was very surprising I like what you said history shouldn't sit in a vacuum I you definitely doesn't feel like that as you're reading the book it's it's quite good I have to I have to ask how long does it take to write a book like this because I will say listeners there is footnotes at the bottom of every single page, well, nearly every single page, which to me says the authors have done, and you've done an awful lot of reading. <laughs> so I'm curious, how long does it take to write something like this with all the research and the follow-up? It depends. So the first book took longer, but that was from different circumstances. Yeah. Uh, this one was a bit shorter. In one sense, we had Ian and I had found our tone, so we knew where we were going. We'd already tried a book kind of in 
you know, in this field, in this series. And so this one came easier. Uh, a book like this was a little bit quicker to write than, say, another book because each chapter is a self-contained story. So I could turn my attention for, you know, a block of time to one woman yeah. and research her and write her and, and all that um, and then kind of park it, do the other tasks that I need to do with all the other parts of my life and work and then come back and write another one. And, of course, there's lots of back and forth. You know, you go back and edit the storyline or think about the emphasis uh, of, say, each chapter. So each of these chapters is not just straight biography. There's a it's there's a theme running through mm. each um, chapter. So, you know, sometimes there was a tinkering with the theme. Um, there was obviously, yeah, lots of footnote checking. Oh, that stuff takes so long. But it's worth it. It and um, and there's the final kind of edits at the end, you know, the the finicky little details. Yeah, you know, do you do single or double quotation marks? Are they consistent? <laughs> and all that fun, all that stuff that counts, um, yeah. that needs to be right. So yeah. it can take a while. Um, so it's, it feels like it's a it's a child that we've been bringing into the world for a little bit. But at the same time, um, there was great joy in the writing process. So as I focused on each of these women and um, wrote about all my five, they really did feel like um, women walking alongside me on the Mm. Christian journey. And I think that's what you were picking up on that comes out in the chapters. I I end up writing what I love and what I find interesting and what um, connects to me. So when I found something in these women that I was like, that's that's really challenging for me or that's so encouraging or, um, wow, that really makes me rethink X, uh, that's what I tended to put in. So So even though the writing process was, you know, arduous, it was actually a great joy because I had the company of these women. Yeah. They were great company. And, and it's actually a privilege to be able to honour them and give them the voice that they deserve. That's <laughs> it. I wanted to uncover their voices again. And mm. it's not that these women haven't been uh, written about in history. They, they need to have been for us to have found the material to write about them. But uh, some of their stories are harder to uncover than the stories of men in history and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, so it took harder work to uncover but the material's there and, um, yeah, so so thankful to, again, bring their stories to light. And all the footnote work is um, just a way for people, if they want, to follow up on the sources so you can get like a first-hand view. You know, you can read their letters. You can read what other people said about them. So um, it's easy for readers to go away and find the bits and pieces that help us know who these women were. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to go read some of their letters because Anne Dutton just seemed like a real am I allowed to say this kick-ass woman? And I just thought, <laughs> I need to read her letters. She's just such a 
well, she was really powerful to me. So that's yes, absolutely. The, yes. Yeah. Her and in many ways her power came through her letter writing. Absolutely. Uh, that was her voice. That was the realm in which she could contribute to the Christian church yeah. um, in a very specific way. So that was her voice. And yeah. so thankful that those letters survive. Yeah, it's great. So before we jump in, because I am, we are going to go in and, and talk about the women, the lessons that are there, things we can take away from their stories. I just thought it might be really good to, uh, I know for me, church history or Christianity in history is a relatively new topic in the sense of I know it's there, but I haven't really had the time to start studying it, but I've wanted to. But I am not sure if I could verbalise why it's important. I think sometimes we can get stuck on, oh, when I read, I need to just read the Bible. We don't need to go back into church history all the time. Is that even necessary? You know, they didn't get everything right. And so I thought I'd ask you a few basic questions about history so that can lay a good foundation before we get stuck into the women in there. So I guess maybe starting off, what started your passion for Christianity and history or history in, in general and what like how has that helped you personally in your Christian faith? I think in many ways at the beginning of my um, journey into history, I was very much like you. I was like, I don't quite see why I need to do this. Um, but sure, I'll, I'll jump in mm. and I'll learn. Um, but as I did it, this whole world opened up and um, you've touched on some great things there um, in your comments about history that, yes, we, we read the Bible uh, as Christian women and that is our um, that is our authority, but what history does for us, and particularly as we look at the history of the Christian movement, Christianity and history, um, is we get to see how other people interacted with the Bible, um, uh, valued the Bible, sought to live out the Bible in their particular cultural contexts. And so that has great value for us because as we think uh, here and now, how do we take what we read um, and apply it to our lives? We have this whole host of, of, of witnesses, of fellow company, of people that have gone before us, and we stand on their shoulders. So to think that at this point in history, you know, we've, we've got it all figured out and we we don't need anyone from the past, um, it's simply untrue. We stand mm. on the shoulders of men and women um, across history and the legacy that they have left and the way that they have uh, lived and shaped their societies um, is what we inherit today. So, so many of the things that we take for granted uh, in our societies, uh, things that we uh, take as normal. Mm. For example, the issue of consent. Um, that's not a new. That's not a new issue. We stand on the shoulders of many people before um, who have been working through that issue in their contexts, and so here we are now. Um, we don't exist in a vacuum. We stand on their shoulders. Um, and I find history as well, um, I think, really helps breed empathy. So mm, that's we get true. to 
Yeah, see what it was like for a person to wrestle with um, really tough situations and questions and and they couldn't see the future. We get we get to see the future and we can go, you know, why did you do that? Why did you? But they were playing their hand as best they could at, in their particular moment, not knowing the future. Um, and so it does breed empathy. And I think that that's very important um, within contemporary Christianity um, because we need to have empathy with people that we disagree with. We need to mm. take a generous view of um, their arguments, the way they think. Um, the lovely thing about history well in terms of kind of breeding empathy is that uh, as you track with these people, um, they don't stay static. So what they thought in their 20s might be different to what they thought in their 30s, yes. what they thought in their 40s, and all being refined by the scriptures and their experience and and, and reason and so on. But I think that also helps us take a generous view with one another because we're all works in progress. Um, and so we have to give people the room to grow. And that includes challenging and encouraging them to think through um, particular issues. But there has to be room to grow. And uh, there's empathy as well in um, looking at the mistakes of the past. As, as you said, no one's perfect. No one gets this right but that's that's not the point these are stories of really god's grace in people's lives with yeah. all their shortcomings with all their failings and how god uses broken people in a broken world for his purposes absolutely yep and i think that's that's a really important note because i think sometimes we get frustrated when we <clears throat> even in today's time we have you know male and female leaders that are prominent and do great things uh, for the church and to grow people and then they fall in some way and we just ride them completely off. Um, and I'm like, well, if we did that to everyone, we'd have no one to look back at um, in history. You know, we're fallen creatures that get things wrong and there's still so much we can glean from these people. So I think church, like you said, I like that. It gives us grace. <laughs> For one another now, dealing with one another, and that doesn't yeah. mean that there uh, shouldn't be an accountability. No. And, and leaders are, um, are are called to account. We're all called to account, but but leaders especially. Um, but yes, it's also accepting the reality of the consequences of other people's sin. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we kind of touched on it. Um, why do you think it's important for the church though? Like, yes, for us personally, but why is it important for the church to know and understand the history and how the church has moved and changed over the period of time? It helps uh, churches um, and global church understand where they've come from. Now that includes theology. So um, in much of what I teach in Christianity and history, uh, it is the story of how the church has approached different theological issues at different times and there have been live contexts for mm -hmm. uh, them to work that out, say, uh, in their articulation, the church's articulation of the Trinity in the early centuries that came in a particular context in which uh, uh, that was um, untrue things were being taught about, say, God the Son. 
um, and how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Mm. Um, so it helps us understand theology. It helps us understand why we do particular things uh, as churches, uh, why we do what we do when we meet together, why our churches uh, look the way they do, so even kind of the way that we lay out the physical elements uh, in a church building or have historical uh, context. Why is the pulpit in most evangelical churches in the centre um, at the front? There's historical reasons for that. And yeah, it's see, I would to never the Reformation. Known. Say yeah, it again. Okay, I would have never known that or thought that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, helps us understand uh, that. That was a recovery of the importance of the word um, and a, a church leader's primary role being to teach people the word rather than administer the sacrament. So that was when the table, the altar used to be the centre of the Roman Catholic, is still the centre of the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the front. Um, so, yes, that has a 16th century context. Uh, the fact that we have Baptist churches, Anglican churches, Pentecostal churches, Presbyterian churches, all of those have historical contexts. So to understand the particular church you're in, it's really helpful to understand why. Why, why was that necessary? And even uh, Protestantism um, that's emerged from the 16th century um, recovery of the gospel in the scriptures. And so before that, yes, there was the Eastern Orthodox Church, but really there were in the West there was one Roman Catholic Church. So mm. it helps us understand our denominations, the physical spaces, why we do what we do on a Sunday, why we do the Lord's Supper, the reasons we do it in the ways that we do in our various churches, why we sing, why we preach, why we pray. Uh, why we care for one another, why we value community, um, why we value care for the vulnerable in society, uh, all those things have yeah. historical reasons. And I think that also helps give us a bit more reverence maybe for the gathering as well, right, that that helps create a bit more awe and reverence in our in our acts of worship to know it has meaning, meaning and purpose, not just willy-nilly um absolutely yeah it gives it or and it gives us a sense of continuity mm. um with the people that have gone before us um and we will meet them one day and uh as i said before we stand on their shoulders but we have this continuity with christians who have gone before us and they're in many cases sacrifices um, enable us to do what we do today. So, so holding a copy of the Bible in your hands in your own language has cost people dearly in the centuries before us. And so, yeah, there's a sense of awe and thankfulness mm. um, that they did what they did in their time so that I can carry a Bible yeah. around with me uh, in my bag. Yeah, and I think that's why I really enjoyed the book uh, Catherine Booth you wrote on, which 
that was a, a big – I'd never heard of her before. Um, and so for our listeners, she she's, uh, I guess, is the mother of the Salvation Army now, as we know it. But just to hear her story of um, how she's impacted, yes, the Salvation Army and helped create that, but more so um, maybe you can share – I'll let you do it, Rachel, how she, looking back, reflecting on her story, has impacted not just the church but also society um, as a whole. Because I know which she had a massive impact, yeah, on society through the Salvation Army um, along with her husband William, although they did work sometimes on different projects. So mm. one of the projects that she worked on was um, tackling child prostitution in Victorian Britain in the 19th century. Now, it was particularly rife at that time and um, of young girls, uh, there was a particular vulnerability for those from lower yeah. uh, socioeconomic classes. So where families were struggling to make ends meet, that made their daughters, their girls, susceptible to uh, being sold and being trafficked in order to help the family. And other girls were uh, abducted off the streets of London and 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 brought into that. Yeah. yeah, so Catherine, do you want me to talk more about Catherine? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, so she didn't act alone. I want to emphasise that. We all work in, in teams and she stood um, with others in this and uh, there, yeah, there were other men and women working really hard in this space. Um, but uh, it was something that was close to her heart, particularly in the latter years. It was one of the last kind of, I don't want to use projects, but the last thing she wanted to tackle in terms of the, the difficulties uh, faced by many people in Victorian Britain. Um, and so along with her uh, team, there was essentially a setup to um, purchase a young girl and um, initiate into her initiate her into a brothel she was 12 years old um, and then traffic her to the continent so they performed uh, this feat but rather than her um, Having the of other yes, girls, that's right. You yeah. know, she didn't. She didn't know she that this safe. was a setup. So she really thought that this is what uh, was going to happen to her. Her mother, her mother sold her. The mother didn't know either. So, so she got to the brothel. She was left alone in a room with a man for an hour. But that man was an investigative journalist, and um, he did not touch her. Um, and after they trafficked her to the continent with Salvation Army. Um, officers and people who knew that looking trade and those her. roots, yeah. looking after her, taking care of her. Um, this journalist was able to write it up on the front page of the Paul Moore Gazette and get Britons talking about an issue that they just did not want to talk about. And so on the back of um, that story going viral. Which I was, um, that was yeah. a really cool point in the book that, you know, you're going from 175,000 readers to a million with this article. Like it's yes. the first viral thing that we know of, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but yes, it, it certainly went viral. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there were there were big consequences for those involved in that mm. scheme. Some went to jail, one died in jail. 
Um, uh, it was it was fairly awful for them, but they were willing to pay that cost um, because it was making a dent in really what was an evil scheme. And so on the back of getting Britons talking about it, the Salvation Army and, and Catherine Booth uh, presented a petition, hundreds of thousands of signatures to Parliament asking for the age of consent to be raised from uh, 13 up to 18 um, and it was finally settled on as at 16. There were other things they asked for as well, but um, that was one of the major ones. I mean, it's, it, that's huge. When I read it, I thought, wow, you know, we can sometimes feel like it's an uphill battle and we can feel like, you know, I'm called to be the voice for the voiceless for whatever cause it may be, but here's proof in the pudding that, you know, with hard work and endurance and continuing to be faithful to the word and where God's called you, they changed the age of consent. I mean, from 13 to 16 is a big leap. I mean, 13 is young. Um, 16 is still young. But you get what I mean? It's still a great improvement. And I, it was really encouraging to see how that that also helped, you know, I guess um, grow the Salvation Army to be a worldwide church, which was amazing. Mm. And it came out of Catherine Booth's conviction that all people were precious and made in the image of God. Mm. You know, um, uh, shortly after her death, someone who knew her well described, uh, described her as a lover of humankind, and that's what she was. So it was the gospel that drove her um, to do this because she saw these girls in very vulnerable positions um, being exploited Um and this was a, there were, you know, other things that the Salvation Army and, and others did in terms of tackling this problem. Absolutely. This was just one of them. Mm. But it was a very strategic way because it it made it illegal to procure a younger girl. Um, and so there would be consequences in the law where there was not before. So it was a very strategic move, but it came out of um, her commitment that, uh, all people are valuable and precious to God. In particular, women in an era where they had little value. Yeah. So yes, in in the in nineteenth century Britain, um, uh, women were not deemed in society as intellectually or morally uh, equal mm. to men. Uh, Charles Darwin wrote on that and um, others as well. So it was it was kind of the the water that they were swimming in where um, women were not as valuable and and Catherine refused to accept that. She said no women have equal ontological worth, equal worth in their being because they're made by God. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tim Silberman from SMBC. I'm one of the lecturers in the missions department. And I reckon one of the best God-led decisions I ever made was to take some time out and study the Bible full-time at SMBC. So here's a bit of a nudge. If you're thinking about full-time study too, with all the study options at SMBC, I reckon we just might be able to help you work through some of the obstacles that are stopping you from taking the next step. Whatever your life stage, there really are lots of opportunities. You can come and study on campus, face-to-face, or you can study live online, wherever you are, from the comfort of your lounge room. So let me encourage you to get to know God more deeply. Be transformed through his word. 
grow in your faith, and so that you might be more confident in sharing the gospel with others. You can follow us on the socials, come along to one of our info sessions on campus or even online. You can find all the details on the events page at smbc.edu.au. No, I, I really enjoyed her story. It, um, we, I have an NGO background working with human trafficking, so it really resonated for me yes, <laughs> to I be like, imagine. yes, do this. And I actually worked with the Salvos in their safe house. So to read about how they created the first safe house and stuff really was was really lovely um, and yeah. encouraging. I have to say, um, as I was reading the book, I was very struck by the boldness of these women, like Perpetua, who is in her early 20s and being fed to the lions, has a little son or daughter, a little baby at little home, boy, yeah, yeah, little boy, um, and still refuses to recant her faith and is then faced with a horrific death. Um, you know, I was really humbled reading the first chapter is about Mary. Mary, you you wrote that chapter, didn't you? I did. Um, and it really was a great theological exploration of Mary that I hadn't really read before um, and it helped me actually understand how humble she was. You know, she was very bold in her faith at a time when definitely women were of lesser value um, and how Christ redeems that in her story but uh, more so I just really loved the way that you described the way that she humbled herself and came to Jesus, her son, as a disciple. Um, and so when I say bold and courageous, it's not always about the bold one being the loud one speaking, but the way that these women all throughout this book are just pioneers for the church and for the faith. And they do this in a variety of ways. Some are very outspoken. Some write really strong, abrupt letters, which I really enjoyed reading about, <laughs> um, fiery. Um, and then some of them are, are meek and gentle and just really servant-hearted. But it was a beautiful way to really challenge, I guess, some of the preconceived ideas we have of what it looks like to be a woman of God and how we we work out our faith as women. Because I think we're in a society right now where it's very confusing. We have ultra-feminist movement happening, then we've got kind of a backlash to that of really um, conservative, almost going a little bit too far, complementarianism happening. So, you know, we've got the rise of trad wives. I don't know if you've heard of them, the trad wife movements. Yep. Very interesting to follow. Um, And head coverings are coming back in. So there seems to be, you know, the culture's really doing this pendulum and people are kind of siding on either side and I thought the book was a really good way of bridging that and and showing um well yeah I guess my question to you is maybe what would be some of the preconceived ideas that you think the book and these women dispel about uh, being a Christian woman sorry that was a very convoluted question (laughs) no it's um that's a great reflection There are lots of preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian woman and I think the way that you've described um, uh, all sorts of women uh, just then um, points to that. And so I think I would want to say in a way uh, what this book, the women in in this book uh, do and more widely that there are many ways to be a follower of Jesus as a woman. Mm. So 
there is not one particular way um, that uh, God says we need to uh, display our discipleship. There are things we are called to as women, um, but in many ways uh, most of what we're called to is what every Christian disciple is called to. We are, we are all called to be meek, humble, gentle, lowly, because that is Jesus' heart. He says, I am gentle, I am lowly. Um, we are also called to uh, give an account of our faith when that's called upon and to have an answer ready. Uh, we are called to be servant-hearted. We are... Um, called to radical discipleship. So um, in those things, uh, men as well as women who follow Jesus um, are to display those things in their discipleship, which is why this book is not just for women, it's for men and women. Um, Now, I am married, as you know, I have children, so the Bible says that I am to love my husband and love my kids. But what that looks like for each woman is going to be really different in each context. Um, And so I think there's actually a lot of freedom uh, in that. And, uh, you know, these conversations can get a little bit heated, but I think we do need to be generous with one another in taking, yeah, a generous view that, Uh, The other person who lives out their discipleship differently to me is still seeking to live for the Lord. Yes. And um, use their particular skills and gifts in their context. And uh, if that woman does it differently to me, that's because God has wired her differently, given her different skills, experiences, situations, different spiritual gifts. And so we should allow God to be creative Uh, In each of our lives, none of us is going to look the same in the way that we express our Christian discipleship. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it dispels the myth that there is one particular way to be a Christian woman, which when uh, we get stuck in particular camps, that can be what we can find ourselves saying, this is is the way you should be a Christian woman. Um, I don't think that's the case. There's, There's not a pink letter edition of the Bible. Um, uh, there's not a Bible for women, really, even though there are some that are sold as such. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're yes. words to men and women, and we need to seek God's face, seek God's will as we keep asking day by day, God, fill me with your spirit. How can I serve you today? And what does that look like for my context? My what does it look like for my context and my, my particular day and yeah. my particular year? Um, yeah, so that's going to change over time. So even, even our expression of discipleship is going to change year by year. Um, you've got, you know, young kids under your feet. That's going to look different to when they're in primary school perhaps, high school, Um uh, if you're single, that's going to look different. Your life's still going to be very, very busy but with different things, so you're going to have different struggles. Yeah. Um, people that are married but don't have children, there can be lots of reasons for that yeah. and, and potentially grief there. Um, but 
that means that the pattern of your life is going to look very different. But I think we I think we need a bit of kindness towards one another in this space and and women um we need each other we Mm. need to support one another and uphold one another um it can be very difficult being a christian woman a lot of the time and and so if we can find ways to support and encourage and nurture not just the Christian women we agree with, but the ones that we don't, then I think that's that's a precious gift and would do the church well. Yeah. And, and like you said, looking back at their stories gives us the grace for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I have to say I really liked the title of the book, Leaving an Enduring Legacy. Um, I know that's not the main title, but is it a tagline? Is that what you call it? What do you call it? Like a subtitle? Or a something. subtitle, yeah. No, okay. A subtitle? No, they're the, they're, that's the text at the bottom of my movies. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you call anyway, it? Anyway, here. It says, <laughs> leaving an enduring legacy. That to me is a, I was like, it's the elevator pitch. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is like that. So, so why yeah. do you want to know that about these women? Why are they tender gals you should know? Because they leave an enduring legacy. So what would you say, and this might be a bit hard to answer, but what would you say is their legacy? Could you summarise it a little bit? Hmm. Maybe to reiterate my um, last point, but they display the very different ways. They're just ten examples of millions Mm. They're 10 examples of what it looks like to seek the Lord and serve him in their context. And uh, so they do display a, a something in their faith that is very attractive. Now, it's not, I don't want to get into um, uh, like elevating them to yeah. a point where, you know, that they were women with flaws, as we all were. Absolutely. Um, uh, so that's important in a way. Uh, part of their legacy um, is to think, okay, even even when you got stuff wrong, how did the Lord use work that, through work that. With that? Exactly. Yeah. How, how did God work with them? How did God work through them, in them? How did he change them, shape them across their lives? Um, and they all left different legacies as they lived out their discipleship and shaped the church. So um, Mary provides us with a beautiful picture of, like you said, becoming a disciple of her son. The last picture of that we have of her in the New Testament mm. is sitting in um, the early Christian community praying. Um, Perpetua, she gives us a legacy of a young woman, she's probably a very new Christian, um, who simply could not acknowledge Caesar yeah. as Lord and so went to her death. So there's a legacy there of standing up for Christ when it costs you everything. everything. Yep. Um, I'll speak about the ones I wrote on. Jane Grey gives us the legacy of uh, a woman who was highly educated uh, in Protestantism 
And so in her writings, we have a wonderful legacy of theological principles. Yes. Um, uh, And to look at a woman who really, she had the opportunity um, where others didn't to engage with the study of the scriptures and theology mm. at a time when that wasn't accessible to most women. Um, and she did so. And so even at her death at 17, she was probably one of the most um, educated women in England and she had reformers as pen Yes, pals. yes, <laughs> yes. Um, she, was so she was really she was playing with the giants. Yeah, yeah, she was. And yeah. she knew she was. She knew that it was a bit awkward um, to write to older male reformers, but she didn't want to miss the opportunity. She said, look, I'm going to be bold. I want to, I want to learn from you. I really look up to you. Um, I loved that when I read her story. Yeah. And I actually was like, this is a really healthy picture of men and women being friends as well. It doesn't. Yes. It's not always sexual. <laughs> they can just be friends and glean from each other. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, she, yeah, had kind of great writing relationships with with um, some of these men, and um, yeah, she she was a theological heavyweight. Yeah, she really was. She was astounding. Yeah. Um, Catherine Booth, we've talked about her legacy, um, and also her legacy just working with the down and outers in Victorian Britain. So people were doing it tough. She believed the gospel should be for all people at a time when um, the gospel really wasn't reaching the lower classes. Um, And so she's a beautiful, her legacy uh, is, is leaving us a picture of what it looks like to take the gospel to people in society who are not hearing it and addressing their social needs was part of that. Um, She realised that that needed to um, accompany the preaching ministry. And then Gladys Alwood, so she leaves a wonderful legacy. She was a missionary in China um, uh, during the war there in the 20th century, mid-20th century, Mm. and she was a very small, in many ways, completely unremarkable woman. And God used her incredibly in that place um, to uh, preach the gospel, both through storytelling in a hostel that she helped run for travellers, in preaching the gospel in isolated villages when she was essentially hired as a foot inspector when binding of feet was outlawed. They found the one woman with unbound feet in the area and said, would you go and help inspect and make sure that the practice isn't continuing? And she said, well, yes, I'll go and do that, but only if you let me preach the gospel at the same time. Uh, bold. They, bold. they allow, yeah, she, yes, absolutely. Um, she was, you know, uh, a very bold woman and I think I, the picture I have of her is she's uh, wise as serpent and, yes. and innocent as a dove. Yeah. Um, and then just her remarkable crossing of uh, the mountains in northern China with a hundred orphans to get them to safety in the middle of the war. Um, Wild. Very minimal food, no supplies, very little support. Um, and the Lord got them through it. It was 
it was remarkable. But she didn't think that was remarkable at all and um, that story really nearly went undiscovered um, when she returned to England except that a BBC journalist uh, read a couple of lines in a newspaper that she had returned, wondered if he would have a story for her for probably what was like an equivalent of a podcast, what you're doing. Um, he was doing like a, a radio series. Um, and he went to her house and said, hey, have you got a story for me? She said, no, I've got nothing. <laughs> said, surely 20 years in China you've got something. No, no, nothing special no, nothing, happened. No. Um, and eventually it trickled out. Oh, I, I crossed the mountains <laughs> with some children. Um very humble. Yes, yeah, she was because she was totally in awe of the stories that she told about Jesus. Mm. And so for her that was what was precious and incredible and she didn't think what she was doing was particularly remarkable. So very kind of um, Christ-centred resilience and Christ-centred humility mm. uh, as well in Gladys. So, so her legacy, what would we say? She's tenacious. That's yeah, what I'll leave with. Word. She's an example of absolute tenacity and 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 not kind of kind of white knuckling. I'm going to do it myself. You know, it's her strength came from the Lord, and her life wasn't yes. without difficulty and heartache. Um, but she committed that to the Lord and um, was able to do remarkable things in His strength. Yeah, great. So. This will lead us to my last question before we wrap up. And I don't know, I feel like asking this question is a bit like asking which is your favourite son, but what would be one of your favourite women in this? <laughs> oh, I was asked this the other day and I said Catherine Booth, so okay. Um, I think I'd say that, but it really does change. My favourite children don't change. No. Um, <laughs> So today I'm going to say Mary. Okay. Yeah. yeah, today I'm going to say Mary because she's a remarkable picture of faith mm. and her picture has changed that history and so that is what the chapter also discusses, the yes. way that after yep. the close of the New Testament um, her depiction uh, changes and she's given a very different storyline from the one that we encounter in the Gospels. Mm. She's given deity really. <laughs> Essentially, yes, yes, she's she's given God-like attributes mm. um, without being God herself. Mm. Um, and so I would love as um, Christian women for us to redeem her story. So I think sometimes because of the storyline that she's been given in history, we can be a, a little bit nervous, a little bit reticent or just ignorant about um, her value for our lives and she is a remarkable woman of faith and so uh, I would love us to rediscover her story as given to us in the New Testament and she is a woman to um, emulate. She didn't always get things right um, but in the end she is in the community of God's people uh, as a disciple of her son, yeah, and that, and I, I, I agree. I when I first opened it up, when I went, Mary, oh, it's about Mary. <laughs> it's so silly, but I was like, I had this 
I had almost this aversion to like, oh, and it is, and I think it's a reaction to, oh, well, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, you know, prays to her and it's just wrong. And, and so we we pull back sometimes of this stuff. So it's really, that's why I found that chapter really helpful and great because I was like, oh, no, there's so much to Mary I'm not considering and the theology behind her and her heart and the way she humbled herself was just a really beautiful picture. It's kind of reclaimed Mary for me, I guess, in a way, which is good. We can tell a more beautiful story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And not do it in a way that we're fearful of, of, of confusing people. That's not the case at all. So no, no. So um, if anyone wants to take a next step into studying history, uh, in particular Christianity in, in the history or church history, where would you, do you have any resources? I know I'm throwing this at you without any preempting warning, but any resources you could recommend or places to go? Yeah, so if you like learning in, in community, there are there are courses you can do. You can audit a course um, at various theological institutions um i'm i'm based in australia so i'm aware of ones here but there are ones overseas too there are lots of kind of entry-level books um that you can look at so often if you look in the church history section of a of a reputable christian bookshop you can find some entry-level stuff. Any in um, particular that you know at the top of your head? Oh, I don't want to plug anything no, okay. in particular. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, there's lots of good resources. And I think often you can, you know, read a sample of the book. So I would go for, um, read, you know, read a sample and think, is this something that I can just pick up and work with yes. a little bit every night? You know, what what, yeah. what engages you, what encourages you? So, um so Tender Guys and Gals is, a, you know, one entry point in terms of accessing it through kind of a biographical yeah. narrative and we've deliberately in each of those books chosen women across 2,000 years. We've deliberately spaced them so you get a bit of the story of the church all yes. the way through. There's, yes. a, there's an overarching narrative even as they are 10 separate narratives. Um, so that's an easy entry point and we have a, we have written it at a very accessible level. We don't assume any prior knowledge if we're using theological terms, we explain them. Yes, but, I did notice yeah. that. It was um, very easy, any level could start. Yeah, good, good. And if you're a history buff, you know, it works as well because there is kind of deep historical work mm. that's gone into into this so that's that's you know an easy easy entry um there are some web resources there are um you know videos yeah you can watch a bit of horrible histories hey there's um <laughs> I forgot about that there's a lot of fun there um yeah my boys will will uh, watch bits and I'm like oh I just taught on that um so, I should get my kids to watch that. Oh, they're fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, ref- I totally forgot about that. I've been yeah, watching they're, that. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And they have some uh, good researchers working on. Do they? Working Are they the still show. making stuff or is that all? Oh, It'd be question. all old school episodes, right? I mean, that's a while I'm not ago. sure. I feel like there's a fair amount of seasons. But, yes, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not up on the current stay. stay. Yeah. Seat. Look and look. That's where my brain's at. I'm still in the depths of young children. So <laughs> maybe a children's program is a good way for me to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, <laughs> and there's podcasts as well. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Yes. So there's there's all all sorts of resources. So where you whether you can just do a bit of gardening or the washing up or you know walking to pick up the kids. Yeah. You know you can listen to something. Listen to something. Um, sit down for five minutes and, and read something engaging. There's yeah. there's all sorts of ways. You yeah, can it's great. Learning community do a course. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure. You can buy Rachel's book uh, or at all your main leading Christian book retailers. I think The Reformers has it, The Wandering Bookseller has it, Kurong has it. So you can get it on all those sites. Um, I highly recommend it and I will be reading 10 Dead Guys you should know next. So, uh, But, yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot them through. Uh, otherwise we hope you enjoyed this episode as always like and share it with your friends and family and again thank you Rachel for giving us your time pleasure thanks for having me lovely to chat with you thanks